0: as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Good morning. Um, My name's Joe. I'm the missions pastor here at Rosemont. Uh, Obviously, uh, I know a lot of people were with great anticipation expecting us to start the Exodus sermon series. Uh, Unfortunately, Adam uh, just didn't feel great this week. Uh, Thought maybe at the end of the week he might be able to uh, proceed with today, uh, but thought it best to uh, just wait until next week. So, Uh, We'll be in a different part today. Uh, We'll be actually in the Old Testament still, but in uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42. But um, before we get started, I just wanted to say uh, one other quick thing. Uh, As some of you know, um, my mother passed away a few weeks ago, and and many people from this church, from this congregation, uh, reached out um, in prayer. Uh, giving meals uh, and just really kind messages. And I just really appreciate that. It was deeply appreciated by my family and it's really helped us through uh, navigating through this season. Uh, but let me uh, let me pray, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Father, we we thank you. Uh, God, we love you and and we just give you all the praise this morning. God, we pray that the songs that we've sung this morning, our minds, our prayers, our hearts, have all been pleasing to you, and that they've glorified you exclusively. And God, I thank you for this church, for this congregation that's assembled today. God, help us to focus on you, on your word this morning, and help us to keep it and hide it in our hearts, and then share it with our world. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So today, like I said, we're going to be in Isaiah, And before we start, there's a lot of uh, context that we need to understand before we can just jump into a book like this. And if if you'll bear with me for a few minutes, I don't want to sound like a commentary, but we do need to understand both the literary context that we're going to read in and also the historical context that Isaiah was prophesying in. So, first off, who was Isaiah? Isaiah was one of the chief prophets. Uh, They're all important, right? But his book is one of the longest, 66 chapters. Uh, He worked or lived in the time frame uh, between 750 and 690 BC. So a lot of historians believe Isaiah was a scribe of some sort in the courts of Judah in Jerusalem, maybe even a distant relative to one of the kings. So he was very much present, had a lot of time and contact with the kings of his day and age. He served under five different kings, starting from Uzziah, who you can read about in 2 Kings, all the way through Manasseh and even underneath the reign of Hezekiah, who's a pretty well-known king of the Old Testament. So a lot of his prophecies, I mean, they're pretty famous. We read them at Easter when we're talking about Uh, the Messiah. We're talking about Jesus. We read him at Christmas. Isaiah 53 comes to mind. Uh, But let's remember, though, that as we read it today, we have both the luxury and the privilege to be able to read it through the lens of the 21st century with the understanding of who Jesus is. And so we have to remember that the immediate readers of of these prophecies, when they were reading them 2,000 years ago, 2,700 years ago, they didn't know Jesus yet. He hadn't come to save them to redeem them. And so we get to read them in that context though. So uh, some historical uh, ideas about who Isaiah was and the time frame he lived in. So we have to understand about Israel and about Judah. So we know that there was King David, same king, same guy that um, killed Goliath with the stone. We've all heard that story. David had a son, Solomon. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, built the temple. He had a son. His son wasn't as wise as him. and and didn't follow the Lord, and so because of his son, there was a schism, there was a split in the kingdom of Israel. They became the northern kingdom of Israel, capital Samaria, southern kingdom Judah, capital Jerusalem. It's all important. You'll see why. So as as we're understanding all these different things, the northern kingdom never follows, never follows the Lord, always is going different directions, worshiping other gods, etc., etc. The southern kingdom kind of plays like the book of Judges, if you know that book constantly in cycles. Sometimes a good king will come along, restore the people back to God, and then a couple generations later, they've fallen away again, back and forth, back and forth. And this even happened during the time period of Isaiah. So generally speaking, what's happening immediately when Isaiah is actually working, when he's prophesying, when he's working as a scribe, the northern kingdom has already fallen. So, Northern Kingdom has already fallen to a people called the Assyrians. They're in history books. They're probably in your world history book if you're in high school or even in college and you can read about them. They've come and they've already captured the Northern Kingdom of Israel but they haven't captured Judah yet. So like I said, Isaiah, 66 chapters, one of the longest books in the Old Testament, but 66 chapters, you have to understand the first 39 chapters probably penned exactly by Isaiah about what was going to come, the impending doom of all of these nations, Israel, Judah, all the surrounding kingdoms, and then even the empires that God would ordain and use to exact his justice and how they would be dealt with one day as well. So all of these in the first 39 chapters are prophecies Isaiah wrote. Then we have to understand when we jump to the section of 40 through 66, it's important for us to understand that these are read and understood to be read After the exile was over. So you're probably sitting there thinking, well, how did this guy write those 150 years before And this? Most scholars would tell you that either his disciples gathered up his prophecies and kind of kept them. Almost you could think like in a time capsule. And when they came back from uh, the exile, they read them and they made much more sense. And so there's a clear distinction whenever you read the first 39 chapters of this book. And then you read 40 through 66. So there's a gap there, but when we're reading this now today, we're not reading it in the exact period of when Isaiah lived. We're reading it as his followers come back and read his prophecies as restored people back in Jerusalem. So now, all of this being said, we can can now appropriately jump in to chapter 42. So starting verse 1, Behold my servant, Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So we'll pause there. First thing I want you to see behold my servant. So take watch, look for my servant. See my servant. Servant, this idea of servanthood, David referred to himself as a servant of the Lord. Solomon in his own writing said that I am a servant of God. So he's saying, Look for my servant whom I uphold. So there's this difference here. It's this servant that God, who is getting kind of paraphrased here in this prophecy, who God endorses. Why does God endorse this person? Because this servant is a true image bearer of God, and he actually reflects who God is in his character and nature by the way he lives. We understand and we know all the character flaws of all the different people in the Old Testament. A lot of them were great, but they had flaws nonetheless. This servant is very different. He's a complete image and bearer, image bearer of who God is. So my chosen in whom my soul delights. So you might wanna underline that word delights. It's such a beautiful expression here. My chosen in whom my soul delights. Why does God delight in this servant? Because this servant is the perfect representation of who God's nature and his character here on earth. This servant is sold out to live for God, to live for his glory. You know, Stacy mentioned it a little bit um, in reference in, in the entry video about Philippians and about how we delight in the Lord when we serve him. It's because for a moment we're focusing all of our attention, all of our thoughts, all of our mind on serving God and his glory. And so this servant, his whole life is dedicated to that. And so that's why God delights in this servant. Finishing up the second part of verse one, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So two ideas here. The first, I have put my spirit upon him. So I always tell our my Sunday school class, you know, file this one away for your systematic theology, your doctrine, your foundation. So file this one away. This is a, a crucial one. I have put my spirit upon him, this servant. So this is a picture of the Trinity that we're going to continue to build on throughout this These verses today, but my spirit, it sounds a lot like the baptism of Jesus, right? The spirit of the Lord descending down on Jesus, literally in the form of a dove and commissioning the work and the ministry of Jesus. In the same way, this servant is described as going to be receiving that spirit as well. And he will bring forth justice to the nation. So this idea of justice, it's mentioned here once, it's going to be mentioned two more times, and we're going to come back to it. But this servant will bring justice to the nations, and he is gonna be worthy to do that. Verse two, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. So here, here's this prophecy describing who this servant is, because right, we're supposed to be beholding him, we're supposed to be seeing who this servant is. So what is this servant gonna look like? Verse two gives us a little bit of clues, description. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. So he's not going to be a loud, ecstatic preacher. He's not going to be this wild prophet that's shouting. It's going to be very low, very meek, very humble. It's not going to come like you would think of the servants of old, like these bold and proud kings. It's going to be a very different feel. He's not going to be shouting in the streets. And so these People probably reading this text, like I said, we have the luxury of reading it today through the lens of the gospel, but they were probably thinking, who's this guy going to be? How am I going to know him if he's not going to say anything? But we know that through the life, death, resurrection, through the example that Jesus left us, it's undeniable about how he impacted. So if we continue on, there's another kind of confusing part. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench he will faithfully bring forth justice. So there's that word justice again, this idea of justice. But you're probably thinking, all right, so this is why I don't ever read the prophets, right, they, they have these weird expressions, these weird images, and I, I don't even know, Bruce reed, you know, and, and putting out a candle. So there's, there's two ideas at play here. So one is that this guy is gonna be gentle. This servant is going to be very gentle, and it's not here to extinguish hope. So the first image, the bruised reed, so I went to a sunflower patch yesterday with my family, right? We went, checked it out. They all bloomed back in Labor Day, so by now, the stems are starting to droop a little bit. They're starting to kind of fall over, and with the slightest touch, you can just snap one off pretty easily, and I mean, they're, they're definitely bruised from where people have walked all through them, trying to get that perfect picture. They're definitely starting to snap off, but this servant, is described that he won't break the bruised reed. He's not going to come to snap anybody off. He's gonna come with the most delicate and gentle of care. Furthermore, this idea of a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. So imagine you light that candle in your house, you put it on your countertop, you leave it there all day long. We all know that it starts to pool with that wax and finally by the end of the day after it's sat there for hours, there's a tiny little flame there. It's barely holding on. The servant is coming not to put that flame out, not to extinguish it, not to put out hope. So again, this idea that he's not coming to be some great Lord. He's not coming to be some mighty force, mighty power. He's actually coming with great care and great consideration for those that are weak. So jumping in, verse 4, man, this is like the pinnacle of this first section. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law so let's pause there i want everyone real quick if you would flip to matthew 12 with me flip all the way to matthew 12 we're going to be starting in verse uh, 14. so real quick jesus in matthew 12 he's just healed somebody on the sabbath we all know how the pharisees felt about that you know in one part they said you know there's six days for healing like you know leave the Sabbath alone, don't heal anybody. So it was so ridiculous how they felt about the Sabbath. So Jesus just heals this man on the Sabbath, the Pharisees here in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him, meaning Jesus. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So who is the servant from the Bible The Bible answers that question. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So I think we've all probably figured it out before we got there, but it's very clear the servant is Jesus. The description of the servant is Jesus. He is the one that's coming to restore and rescue Israel, and redeem Israel. And so they were to look out for the Messiah, but they did not know him. They didn't really understand who he was gonna be. So if we go back now to verse four, and why I said this is one of the the critical things I want us to hold on to this morning as a church. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Jesus will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. So if you wanted to have like a a memory verse, a heart verse, what a promise that is for us. That Jesus, he's not going to get tired. He's not going to lose sight of his mission. He's not going to get bored with it or anything like that. Kind of the things that traps we fall into until his justice has been served on the earth. It's an incredible picture of the way Jesus works incessantly for you. And, And why does he do it? Because, and how do we know that he does this? Because God delights in him, because he's completely sold out for God's glory. Back in verse one, the description of the servant comes kind of full circle here. So we know he will not grow faint or be discouraged, until he establishes justice in the earth. So again, this is the third time the word justice you've probably been underlining or you've seen that now, this repetitiveness of justice. So we know that this servant, unlike the servants before him, unlike the kings, prophets, judges, whomever was dubbed that term servant, Moses was considered a servant, any of those people were unworthy to execute justice because they were flawed. But this servant is different. This servant is worthy to execute justice and he will which is a profound promise that we can cling to as well. And it should give you peace, and it should give you an ability to be able to be rejuvenated daily, that this type of servant is working alongside of you and for you, orchestrating all things for his glory. And then finally, what is the last part of verse four? It says, and the coastlands wait for his law. So it's a twofold idea. The first, that the coastlands wait for his law. This far off land, these far off reaches, these far shores that they couldn't even really imagine in Isaiah's time. They're waiting for whose law? The servant's law, Jesus's laws. They're waiting to hear his commandments, his statutes. They're waiting to hear the gospel, simply put, in today's terms. Those people are out there and they're waiting, and Isaiah's prophesying this 2,700 years ago, that those people are out there. Furthermore, there's a secondary idea that the coastlands, in this idea that when people were coming to join up in exchange of ideas, it happened in cities and it happened in ports. And so if you're going to go to a port, if you're going to go to the coastlands, there's this idea that you're going to take these commandments so that they can continue to be spread throughout the world. And so that's a secondary idea of it, but just let that sink in for a minute. Isaiah is telling them that before it was all about just the promise to Israel and they would be a light. And now he's talking about this light is for the whole world. This good news, the commandments of this servant is for everyone. It's for everyone. And we, we've heard about these different things over the last couple weeks. We've heard about the missions opportunities, the missionaries, the different organizations and ministries. And, and it's just a reminder to us that if we're really going to be a delight for the Lord, then we need to be sold out like the servant. We need to be sold out and that we need to bring the servant's commandments. To those that are waiting. So this first part is kind of called the first hymn of chapter 42, and then there's a distinct difference in the last five verses, and you're going to kind of see that tone shift a little bit, uh, starting in verse five. So starting in verse five, it says, the beginning: Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So let me go all the way back to the start of verse five. Thus says God the Lord. So it's not just a simple expression. These are, this is an exact dictation of what God said. So before prophecy kind of summarizing, God's kind of shown me, revealed to me these ideas and I'm gonna put them on paper for you guys so you can understand it. But here the prophet, the writer is saying, all right, You want a burning bush moment? This is it. This is it. I'm going to give you an exact dictation of what God says, and you should listen and take note because thus says God the Lord, I am who am, is about to speak. And he gets a little entry roll. He deserves far more, but he gets a, a verse of kind of his accreditations. Who created the heavens and stretched them out? God the creator who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it? He's the life giver in spirit of those who walk in it. So quick systematic point here, quick doctrinal point here, who gives breath to the people on it. So we know through the Genesis story that God gives us life, that he created us, that he formed us and He breathed the breath of life into us. But then it goes on to say, in the spirit of those who walk in it. So do you wanna know why you're made in the image of God? Why are you exceptional? What distinguishes you from the rest of creation? It's right there tucked away for you though the spirit of those who walk in it. God gave you a soul. You are distinguished from the rest of creation. You are made in his image and likeness. You have a soul, and that's what makes you exceptional. That's what makes you special. And we use that term so lightly, but it's here in the Bible, and the writer wanted you to know that. He wanted his readers at that time to know that as well. So verse six, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. So first off, I am, again, is speaking. I am who I am. Yahweh is speaking here. Take note. I have called you in righteousness because I am so good. Because, and who is he calling? He's calling the servant, by the way. So this isn't for you. You can't put it on, you know, your status or anything like that. He's calling the servant. So let's just be clear on that. So I am the Lord. I have called you, the servant, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. So first off, again, kind of building that idea of the Trinity again. We already know that God is going to commission and ordain this, God the Father, by putting his spirit onto this servant. But here it is. What a beautiful picture of the Trinity. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. This idea of the Son and the Father in perfect unison, perfect harmony, holding hands. There's no more beautiful image you can have of what the Trinity might look like, how they interact. We can't quite comprehend it, but here's a snapshot that is given to us so we can maybe start to put it together. I will give you, again, the servant as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So what does he mean by light? You know, Jesus, he called himself the light. He called himself the light in John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So it's undeniable who the servant is. It's obviously Jesus, and he is the light. And what is the purpose of him? What is the purpose of this servant? What's he supposed to do? Here it is, I will give you as a covenant for the people. So a covenant for the people, why do they need a covenant? Because they have a righteousness, fully perfect, fully good God, as it described right above there, And we have humanity, who we know has a lot of issues, has a lot of sin. And so they can't come together. They're apart from each other. And so what do they need? They need a unification point. They need somebody, something to be that harmonious point for them to come to. And who is that? That's that servant given as a covenant for all of humanity. Praise God, because we know who that is now. We've already experienced that. It's already transformed our lives, I hope, for everyone sitting in this room. But for those reading this again 2700 years ago, no clue. Man, that sounds like such a beautiful promise. And so I want us to draw to that point where we think we should never be complacent with this good news. We should never be just be able to gloss over that God loved us so much that he gave us this covenant to redeem all of us. And what a profound idea this is, and especially if you can try to put yourself in their shoes for just a moment, that he redeemed us and that he was promising these people who just got out of 70 years of slavery, I'm about to restore you, I'm about to rescue you as the, the Bible that we pass out to the kids calls it, the Jesus Storybook Bible calls it God's great rescue plan. And that's exactly what this is. He's describing exactly how he's going to do it and how the servant's role in that's going to take place. So what what else is this servant gonna do? Be a light to the nations? There's some, some obvious images that come to mind after this. And to open the eyes that are blind, starting in verse seven, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So there's three ideas here. First off, he's gonna open up the eyes of the blind. So those that are spiritually blind, he's gonna open up, quite literally, Jesus also healed people as well. The second idea here, bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. We just sang a song about, you know, break every chain, but bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. Free them from the shackles the bond of slavery, of of sin. Free them from their sin. Only Jesus, only the light of the world can offer that true freedom. And finally, be from the prison, those who sit in darkness. We obviously know Jesus claimed it himself, to bring light to those that are in darkness, those that are waiting on the coastlands to hear his commandments. Those that are on distant shores want to know who Jesus is. So verse eight, this is where it kind of starts to wrap up. I am the Lord, that is my name. So again, I am who am is speaking. So why is he saying this? My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So obviously we know that. We know that there's no image. There's nothing in this earth that can possibly, even for a fraction, capture God's glory. There's nothing we can make that would ever represent God's glory. And we understand that. We understand that here in, in 2021. But obviously that was a struggle. That was an ongoing struggle that the Israelites had pre-exile and even coming back from exile about the synchronizing of ideas that they had picked up while they were in Babylon and bringing those back as well. So he just wants to clarify, hey, there's nothing that you can bring back, no trinket, nothing, no statue that's ever going to be a representation of who I am. Furthermore, behold, the former things have come to pass and the new things I now declare. So what does this mean? So Like I told you, we have to understand what we're reading in the context of it. The whole first 39 chapters, what the prophet's saying here, what the writer is saying is that all those former things I told you were going to happen, I guess what, they happened. And so what does that make me? That makes me a true prophet because prophets in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament sense, were never wrong. So everything I told you was going to happen, the first 39 chapters of this book have happened. So you can have confidence now that What does it say? The new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you them. So now you can have confidence that what you're reading here, starting in chapter 40 all the way through the end, is going to happen as well. So who's guaranteeing this? I am who am, the Lord, Yahweh. He is guaranteeing that these prophecies that you've already read have come to pass, give him his credentials, and now that they will happen as well. So when we, we think through all of these things, 2,700 years ago, this is, this is a profound text. It's deep. What do we take away from this? Why is it relevant to us today? How does the church use it here and now? There's, there's some critical things I want you to know. First off, you know who the servant is. You know him. His name is Jesus. He is your Lord and redeemer. We understand the gospel. We have that in our hands. You were chosen for whatever reason to know the gospel as well. So first off, you know the servant. There's no speculation, there's no wondering. I wonder who he could be, when's he gonna show up? What's he really gonna be like? How's he gonna restore justice to the earth? He's, he's already come, he's already done it. And now you're entrusted with this information. Secondly, you know his laws. So remember the distant coastline. Remember the distant shore. There are people waiting. That's what the Bible says. They're waiting for his commandments. They're not like you should just go there and share them because there's people there. No, there's people that he has chosen that are waiting to hear this good news. And that's what the whole purpose of these last three, four, five weeks have been with with the missions kind of focus is that whatever path God has chosen for you, whatever has put you in, whatever path that you're on, Use it for his glory. Use it for his glory and go and share the commandments of the servant. It talks a lot about justice here and I want to make sure that I define this clearly for you that the servant is worthy to execute justice. He's worthy of that. We always say God is love, but make no mistake, God is justice as well. And I want you to hear that very clearly from this pulpit that God is justice too. And because of his tremendous love, he is justice and vice versa. So what do we do with all that? We know that we want to be a delight in the Lord. We want him to delight in us. How did the servant find favor with God? Why did God delight in the servant? Because he worked exclusively, incessantly for God's glory. And I know that for us to say, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and do it. I'm going to go out and be just 100% all in for Jesus all in for his gospel and by five o'clock today like we're gonna get off path a little bit me included because the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak but it's our example to hold up and if we really as a church we want to be a delight to him as a congregation we want to serve him we say it all the time like we want everything for your glory let's mean it let's go out and do it and finally i just ask that as we move into time of invitation that that you would really take hold of this truth, that you would take hold of the promise of the servant, the promise that he's working. As we're saying this sermon, he's working out all things around the world. He hasn't stopped. He hasn't lost sight of his mission since he left us with the Great Commission. He is still working until he brings back his justice. And so I ask that as a church that that would be our prayer in this in this time of invitation that we would focus on how, God, how can I, I delight you? How can I be sold out for your glory? What talents, what gifts, what ways can you use me to be just on fire for you? And there's gonna be seasons of it. There's gonna be seasons where, man, we're just hot. We're on fire for the Lord. And there's gonna be seasons where we need to remember the promise and look back to him because we know, hey, The servant's pushing forward, are you? And so, as as we finish up today, I wanna pray for the church, I wanna pray for this congregation, and I just wanna pray that we will continue to focus on those things. God, I I just ask, before I ask, I just wanna say thank you. I love you, God, and I thank you for your justice. I thank you for what you've done, how you orchestrated movements of empires, of people, also you could bring the servant for humanity as a covenant. God, we are in awe of this message. Let us never, never get complacent with it. Let us never just brush over it, all your majesty, all your awesomeness. God, help us help our church really move forward, really be sold out for you. God, I ask that you would move the members of this church to want to be a delight to you. And God, help our church in everything we do, everything we say, everything that we pray be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.